every, every week that I've used the, the mic lately, I've managed to bump the button at some point and turn it off halfway through, so I'm only being half recorded, so I'm trying to be very ginger with it so I don't miss out again. Um, so this week we are talking about widows and orphans in keeping with our little process of thinking about different things about God of justice and our response to that. The Bible has got lots to say about widows and orphans and particularly in the Old Testament it seems like there's a really abiding sense that God cares really deeply about widows and orphans. In Exodus we see this pattern of behaviour that's sort of set up for the fledgling people of Israel. Um, At one point um, Moses says to the people that the the law is, don't take advantage of the widows and the fatherless. And then in Deuteronomy, it's established more. The law is the law says that the tithes and the offerings should be brought into a central place, so that then they can be distributed, so that the priests are taken care of, but also the widows and the fatherless and the alien all have a resource to come to. The Psalms also talks about God being the defender of the widows and the father to the fatherless. The prophets, as we go on further, uh, often are calling the people back to being in covenant to care for the people in the way that he set up initially for it to happen. Um, Jeremiah specifically, there was a, there's a passage in Jeremiah where he's calling the people back to have this attitude towards the widows and the orphans as part of what it meant to be an Israelite. In the law, there was even that provision for the seven-year cycle uh, where the, in the seventh year, the farmers were supposed to leave a field fallow so that um, the poor would be able to glean the accidental growth from it. And we see even in... Maybe I should have... Turn it on. In the story of Ruth, we have like a really good practical example of how that worked because we see Boaz, who was in charge of the fields, deliberately telling his men who were harvesting, don't be terribly finicky about making sure that every single grain of wheat, every single stalk is harvested because when we're done, the widows and the poor people can actually go through the field and pick up all the stuff that was either dropped or that was missed in each, in each whatever they call that, when they hack down the bunches of wheat. Harvesting. Let's call it harvesting. <laughs> and so then, and then in the, on the gleaning, the threshing floors, um, the, the widows were able to pick up the, the bits that were left over as well. So there was a provision in the way that even the agrarian... Um, cycles of doing doing farming were set up so that at the very least the people who had nothing would have a little bit of bread um, to keep them going. Um, so, something that I read when I was reading about all this stuff, I stumbled across the Code of Hammurabi. We studied this in like when I was in high school, and so oh, what was that? And then I fell down a bit of a a bit of a rabbit hole because that's really fascinating. Um, so if you don't know what it is, that's the Code of Hammurabi. And it was this big pillar thing that they found in about 1902. It's massive and it is covered with these little, like, with 
oh, I knew the word hieroglyphics, but it's, it, there's another word for it anyway, but the little cuneiform, it was in my head somewhere, I knew it was there. It's covered in cuneiform, which was the social code of Babylon. So this was all of the laws that they used to keep their society going. It predates the law of Moses by a couple of hundred years. And what was really fascinating is that it's covered with a whole lot of, of laws that govern how you care for your society to keep it going. It even, there's even one of those little things that talks about how despicable it is for people to take the ox from a widow because the ox would be the only thing that they would have left that would stave, them, stave off hunger, that would save them from, um, from starvation and death. What I found most interesting was that just because it predates the Mosaic laws by a couple of hundred years, people have suggested that maybe Moses just copied something that was in existence. But there was actually really interesting parallels, but also differences. But the Code of Hammurabi is all social contract stuff. How, how not to slander people <laughs> and what the punishment for, for slander should be trade and liability and responsibility and how to treat slaves and the ethics of slavery and what to do in cases of divorce and all those sort of things. But when we look at the Mosaic laws, it shifts from being a social contract. These are the laws that keep our society functioning. And the Mosaic, Moses's laws were about um, responsibility as people of God it's a social contract. This is how you function to keep society going as an obligation as people of God. There was a really profound spiritual dimension to the laws that aren't in the Code of Hammurabi, which was by and large, like the, the rest of the world, kind of followed this sort of an ethical code. In Isaiah 57, the prophet is talking to the people about the expectations of God for the people who at that point were spending a bit too much of their time and energy investing into idols and worshipping some pretty dodgy stuff. Um, and he says that if you take refuge in God, then you'll inherit the land. But if you don't, then there's problems. And then in Isaiah 58, he goes on to say, well, this is what God's expecting. When you people fast and pray... You're actually getting so caught up in the pageantry of fasting and praying for God to come and meet you that you miss the point. You're fasting and praying, but your hearts aren't being softened towards what God actually is asking you to do. In verse 6, Isaiah says, For God, is this not the kind of fasting that I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter, to clothe the naked and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? And then he says, God will meet you and build you up. And then he says, God will satisfy your needs. It's pretty formidable, really, when you look at that, um, at what that's really saying that we can fast and pray all we like, but unless we're doing the stuff, God won't meet us. Like, that's pretty intense when you think about that, and I'm not going to say that that's a hard and fast rule, but that's certainly what's coming out of this stuff from Isaiah. And then we move into the New Testament, 
And I think it gets a bit worse, to be honest, because in James, James says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the widows and the orphans in their distress and to keep yourself unblemished by the world. Um, it goes a bit one step further, doesn't it? It's not just when you fast and pray, allow your heart to be softened to what God's doing and then God will hear what you have to say. James goes even further and says um, your religion will be pure and faultless when you do the stuff. One of the things, and this is a little bit of a side note, but I loved it about this, was... Um, the Greek, where it says the world, so that's just, you know, like the established order of things, the way that the, the world works. But this idea of being unblemished actually was kind of that, that image of being un, unpushed up against. You know when you push wet clay up against a mould and you take it away, it's indented? Yeah? It's kind of that idea that... Um, that that when you do this, you keep, you're actually rebelling against the established order of the world. That, that's, that's what the pure religion is. Looking after widows and orphans, which is counter-cultural to what the order of the world is. The established order of the world is survival of the fittest. The established order of the world is he who survives, survives and succeeds and everyone else gets kind of drop kicked off to the side and that the purest religion that we can hope for is this idea of caring for those vulnerable ones that would get shunted off to the side. And I kind of love that. James is sometimes a bit like strong and terrifying, but I really loved that, that idea of us being pursuing faith, pursuing religion that is counter to what the world has to offer and that being really that being a good thing in God's sight. I really like that. Um, I thought that it might be a good idea to back up and look at who the widows and orphans were in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and then work out what our response might be coming off the back of all of that. So is that, we okay with that? You all on board? I'm not seeing anybody who's walking out yet, so that's okay. <laughs> in the Old Testament, the reference to widows isn't a literal, well, her husband died, so she's a widow. It had a bit more implication because um, the, the biblical reference assumes that she has no male protector, no money, no influence, no male authority to come under, no voice to represent her because women were property. So you weren't a widow for very long if you had somebody else who would marry you because... That was just how it went. If your husband died and he had a brother who didn't have a wife, then you were, you had a new husband. <laughs> but if you ran out of male relatives to marry, then you had a problem. <laughs> if, it, if you had a son who was an adult, then you had a little bit less of a problem because he could take care of you. But if you had no one, um, in a world where kinship ties were the thing that made everything happen for women then you had no family and no money. You would lose any access to the public world at all. You'd have no income, no protection. 
It was a pretty dire place to end up if you ended up as an actual widow in the ancient world. It was a pretty dire place to end up. Orphans, likewise, sort of refers not just to, you know, we tend to, oh, it's somebody who has no parents, but in the ancient world, it basically referred to someone who didn't have a father. Your mother could still be alive, but it was the same problem. If your family hadn't been sort of subsumed into somebody else, into another family, then you had no male over the house and the children were in just as much of a dire position as as a widow would have been. They had no protection and no income and no, um, no voice. It left widows and orphans vulnerable for... Uh, vulnerably at risk of slavery and exploitation and oppression and it diminished their voices for justice altogether. If you had no one to speak for you, if you had no husband or father to, to advocate for you in court, you had no one to advocate for you in court. If something was wrong was done to you, it was just too bad because you didn't have a voice. By the time of the New Testament, things had started to shift a little bit. There's still a lot of potential for exploitation and for horrible things to happen, but we notice that in Paul's letters, he talks like Paul talks and says, well, if the widows can do stuff, let them do stuff. If they've got people to support them or they can remarry, then let them remarry. But if they've got no other options, then let the church support them. It seems like the culture had shifted and the the Jews needed to be reminded that they weren't living in the same culture that maybe they had grown up in. They hadn't, you know, Israel was no longer, um, the, the, the blending of the political and the religious that, the Israel, that Israel had wasn't the way that the rest of the world lived. And so to kind of leave the expectation that the widows and orphans would be cared for by Israel, it wasn't working. You can probably argue that the way that the Roman Empire had um, had their impact on the on the known world had sort of shifted the way that the trajectory that things were going. You know, the Greeks spent a lot of time thinking about and, and philosophizing about society and ideals and all sorts of things. And Plato specifically um, valued the education of women, at least hypothetically for the good of society, but it wasn't really practised in his lifetime. But it was interesting that a couple of years before Jesus was around, in Egypt, women were allowed to make wills. They were allowed to protect their property. They were allowed to protect their property in case their husbands were um, unfaithful and left them. They were protected. It's interesting that in other parts of the, um, the ancient world, that stuff had shifted slightly and then Israel got invaded and became part of that. And so when Paul's talking to the, the church, he's talking to a church that's functioning in a society that they don't really know how to do it. He's changing the parameters of what it means to care for each other because um, women now can, you know, they can go and work or they could... There, there were other ways that they could support themselves rather than just relying on the priests. There were some weird laws in Rome, and this is, again, an aside, and I'm sorry, I seem to have fallen down every rabbit hole along the way. But it was interesting that in Rome, once, if you were a free woman, if you were born a free woman, after you had three children, 
You weren't required to be under the authority of a man anymore. You could conduct business on your own terms and you could, um, you could make your own life decisions. <laughs> you get no freedom. No freedom for you. <laughs> well, either of you, really, you're stuck. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I've just got to find my spot again. Now, hang on. So it seems like Paul is... Paul's encouraging the church to... I don't, I don't think that George wants me to talk. <laughs> oh! <laughs> All right, well, I'll try and avoid the rest of them, shall I? <laughs> it seems like what happens in the, in, the, in the epistles, in the letters that Paul writes, is that he's encouraging the church to be compassionate to the needs of the community, but also he sets up a system of intelligent and resourceful activity as part of the obligations for living in community as well. So if a widow has options, let her employ her options. If she has the ability to work, then she can work. She doesn't have to rely on everybody else. But if she has nothing, well then of course we should be supporting people who have, the, the widows who have nothing. So this made me think about the things that we value as a church here at Kaleidoscope and the church in the world. Paul and I don't always see eye to eye on a bunch of things. But one of the things that I really value about Paul is how flexible and responsive he is to the culture that he's speaking the gospel into. And I have rambled at length about the Areopagus. And if you haven't heard me have my little ramble about the Areopagus. I imagine that if you stick around long enough, it will come back around again because it's a really good example of how Paul speaks into a culture and brings the gospel into a place where it makes sense in the context that it's in. And I think that when he's talking to the church about widows and orphans, he's doing the same thing. Rather than saying, well, the people of God always left a field fallow after seven years and did the whole gleaning thing so the widows didn't starve. So the church is an extension of that, so that's what we're going to do. This is the way we've always done it, that's what we're going to do. The Bible says it, so we do it. He doesn't do that. He responsively looks at the culture and goes, that's not going to work in urban, like, Rome. But what will work is that we care for each other and beyond the tithes and beyond the offerings that the people would bring into the temple for distribution, Paul pushes it a little step further and goes, actually, as a community of believers, we've got all things in common, so let's, let's share and take care of the needs of our whole community because that's our obligation to our community to share. You know, he pushes it to that extra bit further when I was reading some stuff about the laws from earlier, that thing with Hammurabi, it stood out to me that in Exodus there is the law about personal responsibility, that a man must be careful not to start a fire that burns his neighbour's crops. Right? This, this is relevant. Just wait for it. This makes sense 
perfect sense in Palestine, which was dry and often was a bit drought-like. And if you started a fire, it would wipe out not just your stuff, but everybody else's fields as well. On the Code of Hammurabi, there is a similar law about making sure that you mind your sluice gate so you don't flood your neighbour's field. Because there was canal irrigation. That was how it worked. Have you seen that? You have a field and you have like a big thing of water that runs down and you open it up and it floods your field a little bit, gives the water and then you shut it so that you don't flood everything but you share the water, right? The core principle is actually the same even though the application is quite different. It would make no sense for the law of Moses to have a law about sluice gates because it was so contextually irrelevant. But the core principle about having responsibility for your own stuff and the way that your own stuff impacts other people is really valuable. And it struck me that perhaps the church has, over a couple of thousand years, lost that flexible ability or has a diminished ability to be flexible about the way that we read some of this stuff and pick up the contextual relevancy of it, right? And how many arguments have we all gotten into over sluice gates or fields on fire, metaphorically, that effectively come down to the same principle, but we allow ourselves to end up in a very almost you know, sectarian, divided place over the same principle that's applied differently. So in an effort for us to exercise our flexibility, I thought that we would think about some of the core principles behind the whole widows and orphans thing. So we've talked, about, I have talked a bit about that already tonight. So what I wanted us to do was have a bit of a think around our tables about if you took off the label of widows and orphans, like as a defining thing, she doesn't have a husband, what are some of the core characteristics that stuck out to you in that in that stuff about what made a widow and an orphan at risk. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes? Okay, so go and do that for like a minute and then we'll um, come back and talk about it all together. No, not modern-day widows and orphans. Like in, the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, what was the things around widows and orphans that... Oh, so in some cases, yeah. Um, yeah, we'll talk about today in a minute. Hmm. Yeah, because... 
All right, does anyone want to shout out anything that they came up with in their group? You guys look like you were talking a bit. Did you come up with anything? Oh. That sucks. Yeah, and if they were taken out of the public sphere, they had no, they were it automatically isolated them. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about my board writing. Yeah, yeah. Well, they wouldn't have been educated because their entire lives were about having babies. Anything else? Um, cool. Okay. Yeah? So then I thought, I'm sorry that my writing is not great, but it was, seemed like the most efficient way of doing this. So if we look at this now, take off the title and we look at these defining characteristics, who is this now? Can we think of people in our society that meet these criteria. Yeah. 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 And widows today in our society um, 
haven't necessarily contributed to any superannuation package. And yeah. Very isolated. Yeah. I, when I talked the other week, one of those statistics was um, women over the age of 40, 46, are more likely... F yeah. It's like 40% of women over 46 are living under the poverty line because they've stopped working to have children and don't have any super to support them. Yeah. Or have just lived outside the system for so long they have no super at all. Yeah. Well, it struck me, I didn't actually write any conclusions myself because I didn't want to force the conclusions of our discussions to fit a specific direction but I thought that this was interesting for us to think about the way that we personally and as a church respond to those people and how if we're deciding that these descriptors which uh, were the Old Testament words that we've chosen to go with the Old Testament widows and orphans and this is the words that you've chosen to draw the parallels for for today, then that verse in James says, this is the religion that is pure and, and holy to, to take care of the domestic violence, violence victims and the disabled and the homeless and the bullied and the forced refugees and the widows and the orphans. That's what religion that does stuff looks like. And I think that's pretty huge. I think we're very lucky in our society that, you know, Centrelink is a massive pain in the butt like 90% of the time, but it is a net that catches, that has the, uh, that is, that decreases the chances of people having a life-altering event that then puts them into such poverty that they die. And Medicare is amazing and provides us with a net that catches so much, that kills people in other countries. Um, and so I think that we're very fortunate. You know, the, the health issues that my family has been dealing with, my husband was diagnosed with um, type 1 diabetes last, last year and he nearly, he nearly died because we didn't see it coming. But the fact of the matter is that he can go down to the chemist and get medication that keeps him alive for $5 a box. That keeps him alive. And we have friends in America who are dying because they can't afford their insulin and they ration it. They ration a medication that is designed to keep them alive because they can't afford it. We're very fortunate in terms of the things that are in place to prevent us living living but there's a whole lot of people who have different issues that it might not be about not being able to afford insulin to live but domestic violence victims very often lose everything when they run and don't have a voice and how do we how can we be supportive of those people as part of the way that we practice our faith is the big question, and it's a terrifying question, and I'm going to give you two minutes to look at each other across the tables with wide eyes and go, I don't know, what are we going to do? So see if you can come up with a strategy, talking around your little tables, a strategy that you might be able to do that might be able to make a difference, even a little tiny difference, to the, to the way that people experience life. Terrifying, I know, just try.
Two minutes. steal your um, little bit of paper under your table, please? I just want to... Oh, thanks. I was going to take a little bit, but thanks. Oh, you, you've solved all the problems of the world. Oh, great. That's cool. We'll have to promote you to the UN. Get you, get you up to... All right, well, maybe um, that will give us something to keep us awake tonight. No worries. Um, I did just want to talk, as it, by way of conclusion, about next week because um, I think sometimes it's really easy for us to, not easy, it's more straightforward for us to think about injustice and response to places overseas um, and to support people who are doing stuff overseas and to be um, championing you know, like the Mercy Ships, which are great. And, you know, Jen talked about it the other week, about the things that she's done and things that she's going to do. Um, you know, going to places that have nothing and have no resources and making a difference to the poverty and the injustice and the lack of voice and the lack of resources that those people have. It's sometimes kind of easy to isolate ourselves from it a little bit and go over there. That's, this is a good response. But I think it can be a bit more challenging, a lot more challenging, to stop for a minute and think about our response right here and right now and the way that we um, interact with the people around us right now. So next week we are going as a community to the walk for, uh, the walk for justice for refugees in the city. It's Palm Sunday and this, this walk has happened every, every year for about the last four or five years which probably says something about the, the way things are going, that the same issue is being marched on every year for four or five years. That's challenging in and of itself, I think. But we're doing this for a number of reasons and, um, and I wanted just to discuss that a little bit before we went because I think it's important that regardless of your political position on, on refugees, 
as believers, I think that there's an obligation in the, in the Bible for us to think through and respond to vulnerable people who are asking for help. And I know that it is confronting when, when we're challenged to think through the ways that we respond to the world. But I think that it's also really important for us as believers to find ways to keep our hearts open to hear things that are hard and to think those things through. I have a very dear friend who I bang heads with quite frequently because he comes down on the spectrum of the argument that is, well, the Old Testament is really a social code for, for believers. The New Testament is a spiritual contract for believers who are choosing to live together and it teaches us how we should love each other and share the gospel, but it's not a political document and really Christians have no business interfering with political stuff at all. That's a whole other, other thing. And I probably come down in a slightly different position and so we bang heads a lot as we bash through this idea of when is a decision a political decision and when is it a humanitarian decision and how do those two things intersect? When is our obligation as believers stronger than our obligation to our nationalism and to our economic pride in our nation? When are those two things opposing or intersecting? How does that all fit together? And it, they're hard questions and hard decisions and hard places to come down on all of that stuff. And I'm not going to be the one that tells you where you should come down on that. And and I'm not, I don't think that anyone at Kaleidoscope is the type of person who will tell you definitively this is the only way that you can think about any of these things because um, we all have our po position on all of this stuff. And for, um, for lots of us, the position that we've come to is a position that's taken a lot of time to get to that reason. But for a lot of us... Sorry about that. I just punched the mic in case there's a really loud crackle of the recording. Sorry. Um, <laughs> For a lot of us, the really considered position that we came to at one point of our lives has shifted. And I'm not under any expectation that your, your opinion has to shift. And none of us think that your opinion has to shift in order to be part of Kaleidoscope. But we are all on a journey together and we're all muddling through to work out what it is that God is asking us to do in our communities. So, the walk on Sunday is an opportunity for us to stand in solidarity with loads of other people who are making a choice to set aside labels that are quite frankly pretty hurtful and they're designed to be hurtful you know whether you get called a bleeding heart social justice warrior or whether you're called a right wing I had a whole lot of very diplomatically phrased names for a whole lot of different segments of the community but you know whatever label has been lobbed at you. There's a whole lot of people who are coming to this walk who are making a choice to set aside those labels and to stand in solidarity with people who are hurting and say that regardless of what, what your opinion is about whether people should be allowed to come into the country wally nolly or what, they deserve to be treated with dignity. And last week we talked a whole lot about the fact that we are kids of God and all of humanity 
is made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and to be treated humanely. And so we are going to stand together with a whole lot of people who all believe the same thing. Lots of people who don't believe in Jesus, some people who do. The point is that we believe that it should change so that people are treated humanely. So, all of that being said, is there any questions about that? So, we're going to meet on the... (laughs) We are going in. If you want to join us on the train, we're leaving on the Pakenham train from at 12:30 from Pakenham and we'll be in the front carriage. So if you are on any of the train line on the Pakenham line on the way in, um, look it up and make sure that's the 12:31 and that gets us into the city just before two o'clock. So then we'll walk up to the steps of the light, 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 hang on. It's the steps of the library, yes. Yeah. Um, So we'll meet at the steps of the library at 2 o'clock. If you don't come with us on the train, then you're welcome to get your own way in there in a car and find parking and meet us there. It's massive, so if you don't actually find us, we'll do our best and people have their phones on. So we'll just, we'll try and all get together so we can walk together. But if not, just walk anyway and be part of the... What station's opposite the library? Melbourne Central. Central. Okay. So you pop out Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It would be, it's much more efficient if we all going in the train. No, the 12.30 is a, is a straight train. Um, the one that goes after that is the stupid five buses and a llama to get into the city. Uh, <laughs> if you want to ride a llama into the city, Michelle, no one's going to stop you. Right. Yes, I think I saw the photos of that. So if you choose not to join us, I will be putting um, a bit of a prayer and a meditation thing up on Facebook. So if you want to participate with us in spirit, but you don't feel like you can do the walk or any other reason that you might not want to join us, there'll be some Facebook stuff up there so you can still participate in something vaguely church-ish. I think that's all I wanted to say. No, the normal week, the, no, it's Easter. The, the week after that is Easter. Yes. So, so the week after Palm Sunday will be, will be Passover, which we will be celebrating here, which will be the food thing. So, yes. Yes. So, I will be contacting people this week. I'm going to start calling people and going, hey, Kelly, can you bring? And you're going to say, yes, Beck, sure. First. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm done. I hope that in the process of this, I've maybe stirred up some things for you to think about. And um, as we continue the series, maybe we'll come to some conclusions towards the end of the series about our response to a whole lot of things. But this might at least stir some stuff up. So, would you let me pray for you before you go? Ace.
Father God, thank you that we have the liberty to meet together and to think through these things that are hard and sometimes challenge the ways that we live our lives every day. I just ask that you would be stirring in us this week that some of the things that we've talked about would just sort of sit in the back of our heads and and cook and that you would be directing our thoughts to what it is that you are expecting of us what it is that you are wanting us to do or to change in ourselves to be more like the people of God that you are calling us to be as we seek your justice and to seek your kingdom coming in the world I ask that you would just challenge us and that even though that's not going to be comfortable, God, I ask that you would that you would be taking us to a new place, taking us further on, further in to what it is that you are asking us to do and be. Yeah. Amen. Thank you.